empire. Um, and I um, thought a good way of coming at that would be to talk about Colossians, um, which is this letter, and Candy's just read an extract from a letter. And we're going to talk a bit about that because I think it's set in the context of power and empire. Um, and I'll explain a little bit more why. Um, just a little bit of context about that letter. Um, it's a letter written to a particular group of people in a place called Colossae. Ignore the arrow. Um, Colossae is sort of in the middle of, sort of modern-day Turkey. Can you see that there? Um, and it's a letter that um, is a Pauline letter. So there might be some bits of this letter that were written by Paul. There might be other bits that were sort of wedged in as an afterthought by somebody else um, who was trying to speak in the voice of Paul. Um, so um, scholars, are, the jury's out really on quite which bits of this are Paul and which bits are not. And it's, you can all, as you read Colossians, it's only four chapters, you can sort of see the seams, seams in the letter where people have added different bits in as it's gone. But the bits that were written by Paul were feasibly written while he was in prison, um, his first time in prison in Rome, which was in AD 60, 61, something like that. Um, and that's the period of time when Nero is the emperor, um, if we take that as the date. Nero is the emperor of, of the Roman Empire. Um, and Paul is writing this letter to the people of Colossae there, who will have been um, Gentiles, so not Jewish people, people who uh, had set up this sort of revolutionary small group, this revolutionary cell group that were beginning to think, how do we live out the way of Jesus in this place. And they will have been under pressure from all over the place. They were living right slap bang in the middle of the Roman Empire. Um, and so will have been under pressure from this big controlling empire run by Nero in Rome. They will have also been under a bit of pressure from the Jews who were saying, if you want to follow the way of Jesus, you've really got to keep all the Jewish law and here's all the bits of how you ought to live your life and here are the food laws and the purity laws and all of that stuff. And so this little community just getting going in Colossae would have been under pressure from all angles, um, from some different empires, if you like. Um, frankly, as we talk about empire, you could pick virtually any bit of the Bible to talk about, I think. The, the Jewish story and the story of Jesus and the story of the early church all of it, frankly, lives in the shadow of empire in one way or another. Um, the Jews ended up in captivity in Egypt in that empire. The Jews ended up in captivity in Babylon in a different empire. The Jews actually back in Israel setting up their own new empire, which goes terribly wrong um, and starting to you know, almost have their own imperial power. Jesus crucified by the Roman Empire. The early church living in the context of the Roman Empire. You could virtually pick any passage from the Bible, I bet you, and find a way in which this is actually written in the shadow of empire somewhere. Um, so we're picking this particular text, but like I say, I think you could pick a million others and, and talk about what power and empire looks like. Um, so my first question, I guess, is what is an empire? What is empire? What is the sort of power that sits behind it? And you could probably come up with a million different definitions of what an empire is. But um, as I was planning this talk, I was thinking in the terms of a sort of power structure, generally a power structure that's got somebody leading it and is generally led through might and force and subversion and making sure the empire continues to exist. If you look at the Roman Empire, you've got this mighty Roman Nero sitting you know, on the throne, if you like, in, in Rome. And it's all about power and force and making sure the status quo continues to go on. And empires generally use a whole load of tools to make sure that the empire continues to exist. So they use the tools of religion. The Roman Empire definitely did that. 
to make sure that the subjects of the Roman Empire stayed in line. The Roman Empire used the tools of force, the Roman army. The Roman Empire used the tools of communications. So pictures and images of Roman emperors and gods all over the place to explain where you fit in, what your story was, how you ought to behave in this empire. So as we're thinking about empires, I think, think about the empires you probably know of, the British Empire, the Roman Empire, all of those sorts of things. But I think also think perhaps in terms of power structures, a structure of power that is actually getting people to fall in line. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. This um, letter um, written to the people of Colossae, um, Colossians, is written completely into the context of empire. And you can read the letter in lots of different ways. And the way your sort of lens for reading it impacts what you get out of it, frankly. Um, you can read this letter and forget all the empire stuff, and it's all about the supremacy of Christ and how he fits with God and how we ought to behave in reference to Jesus. And you sort of miss all the stuff about empire if you're not careful. Um, if you read it saying this is written into a particular context to a particular group of people who lived right in the middle of this great big Roman empire, something else jumps out of the text. Um, so... Paul, or whoever wrote some of these bits, was definitely making really blatant references back to the Roman Empire the whole time. And it's really easy for us to miss them because they're not written in our language. And the sort of contextual stuff doesn't jump off the page to us because it's not our context. And so you read this letter and some of it just washes over you. But if you were living in Colossae in the Roman Empire, some of this stuff would have smacked you off the page because it was making direct parallels and direct attacks at even the Roman Empire. And I'll just explain a couple. Um, the first one is, and we didn't read this bit of the letter, so I will read this to you in a moment, but Paul talks about fruitfulness and fertility and the fruit bearing out the whole way through this letter. Let me just read you a little bit. This is um, chapter 1, verses 3, three through to 6, I think. Um, it says this, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we've heard your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all of God's people. The faith and love that springs from the hope stored up for you in heaven, about which you have already heard, is true. Um, and the message of the gospel that's come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. Just as it has been doing amongst you since the day you heard and you truly understood God's grace. That little um, just sentence there that talks about bearing fruit and growing. The whole way through this letter, Paul uses that type of language, fruit, growing, fruitfulness. Um, and he's making links to the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire loved to talk to the people in the Roman Empire about if you stay in line, if you pay your taxes, if you live within our rules, the Roman Empire will be good for you. It will be fruitful. It will be peaceful. It will be a place that bears fruit. They loved to tell a story of how great the Roman Empire was and how fruitful it was for everybody. Through this letter, Paul is making references back to that the whole time and saying, in effect, don't be duped into thinking that it's the Roman Empire that bears fruit. It's something different. It's something counterintuitive. And we'll come on to what that might be in a moment. But there are links all the way back to the Roman Empire the whole time. Here's an even bigger um, uh, I guess, indication that this is about the Roman Empire. Um, in the Roman Empire, you'll have probably heard about something called the imperial cult. But in effect, um, the Roman emperors from Julius Caesar onwards, certainly from Augustus onwards, the second Caesar, 
um, they talked about themselves as God. So they set themselves up as the most powerful men in the world. They set themselves up as the person in control of everything. They even went as far as saying, I am God, deify me. And so after their deaths, they were often deified and they were given the titles that made them sound like gods and they were talked about as gods. Now, the stuff I read was saying probably the emperors didn't really think they were a superhuman god, but they were definitely going to use the tool of religion and deification to make sure that people in their empire knew they were in charge. They were the god. They talked about themselves in that language the whole time. Let me just read you this little section that I read from a letter about the way Roman emperors talked about themselves as gods. It says this, The Romans did not sharply distinguish religion from politics, for religion was a function of the state, and the worship of gods, which were recognized by the state, was part of the duty of every citizen. Emperor worship, therefore, expressed the attitude of the worshipper towards the emperor as the embodiment of the imperial power. But to the Roman citizen, distinguishing, the distinguishing attribute of deity was power. Wisdom and morality, in the highest sense, hardly entered into a Roman citizen's notion of God at all. So there's loads of stuff, if you Google it, um, loads of stuff about how the Roman emperors saw themselves as definitely in charge, but almost God. Um, here's a picture. This is a different Roman emperor a bit later on in history, so this is probably like 150 AD, something like that. But um, I don't know if you can make it out there, but there's the Roman emperor and his wife ascending to heaven. You can go and see this in the Vatican Museum. Ascending to heaven, carried by some eagles. And on the left-hand side down there, that big pillar in the left-hand side, is the place where Roman emperors were deified in Rome. So they went off. After they died, the, the council got together and deified these Roman emperors. This is a definite thing. This is fact that Roman emperors saw themselves as completely in charge and God. So into that context, if you understand all of that, you then read what Candice read again. And let me just read it to you. The Son, Jesus, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, in Jesus, in God, all things were created things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that everything in him might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all fruitfulness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So if you know all of that about the Roman emperors, and then Paul writes a letter like that, that is complete sedition. I mean, it is such a flying in the face of the Roman Empire. They thought Nero was all in charge and all God, and they built these sorts of statues. And Paul is saying something completely different. He, this, that letter there is not just a piece of theology about how Christ and God and we fit together. That is a real slap in the face to the Roman Empire. And it, to the people reading it, that would have really jumped off the page. Um, so, as I was planning for this talk, I read a book which um, is a really interesting book. It's called Colossians Remixed, and it's called Subverting the Empire. And talks a lot about... Well, Paul was writing to a particular context of people living in a particular empire, but it makes loads of parallels to the life we live 
in our empire, and I'm going to talk a bit about what that is in a moment. It says we've got to understand the context of what Paul was saying to these people, and then there are lessons we can learn from all of that that relate to our lives in 21st century Western culture. Um, I think we do live in an empire right here, right now. It doesn't necessarily look like the Roman Empire. I think we live in the empire of capitalism and consumerism and globalization. And I wonder whether we've even frankly noticed. Um, to the Romans um, in Colossae, um, they, were th- they were living right in the heart of the empire. Did they actually notice what was going on around them? Do we notice what's going on around us? At the center of the empire, if you were living in Rome as a middle-class citizen, things probably did feel peaceful. Things probably did feel fruitful. Things probably did feel like this is going well. The Roman Empire works, doesn't it? At the center, things felt great. At the fringes of the Roman Empire, things looked like forceful suppression of different tribes around the edges of Europe. At the edge of the Roman Empire, things looked like if you were in a lower power status, you were abused. At the edge of the Roman Empire, things looked like forceful suppression of people. At the edge of the Roman Empire, people were used and abused. Things at the centre felt good, things at the edge of the empire didn't feel so good. I think that's entirely true of the culture we live in. At the centre, living in central London, right at the heart of Western capitalism, things feel all right, don't they? Things feel peaceful. Things feel, you know, like you can make your way in life. At the edge of our empire, our capitalist empire, people are used and abused. Things don't feel so great, I doubt. At the edge of our empire, working in a sweatshop to make our clothes that we can go and buy cheaply. At the edge of our empire, things probably don't feel so great, where in Bangladesh, we've used and abused the resources of the planet to the point where every year you're worried your village will flood because the tides have risen. At the edge of the empire, things probably don't feel so great as a cocoa farmer in Africa making an absolute pittance to live so that we can have a nice chocolate bar for 60 pence. At the edge of the empire, in our society right here in this city, things probably don't feel so great that the system is set up so that the rich keep the riches and the poor don't have access. So somebody living homeless on our streets in London, the empire probably doesn't feel like it works for you. At the edge of the empire, the fact that we've commoditized everything means that human slavery and trafficking goes on from the edges into our city right here, right now. Sitting at the center of it, in the privilege of it, it probably all feels great, but at the edges it probably doesn't. And I think the parallel between what was going on in Roman society, completely different stuff, but and the parallel to our society, where at the centre it probably is easy to miss the fact that we live in an empire, but at the fringes it probably really wasn't. So, as I said, I think our empire, our power structure, our system that we live in is consumerism and capitalism and globalism, and the myth that Things can grow and grow and grow and grow and exponentially grow and grow and grow and can keep on growing forever. I think we know deep down that valuing things by GDP alone is not a good way to live. I think we know that it's unsustainable, that there's injustice built into that system. And yet sometimes I think we don't necessarily know what to do about it. Um, Similarly to the Romans, I think they were surrounded by imagery which told them about their empire, which told them how to fit in, which told them how to live their lives, which told them, if you want to get on, this is what you need to do. And I think similarly in our culture, we have all that imagery going on around us. Um, I'm going to try and play you a couple of sounds on my phone. Um, See if you can spot what these are. Hang on, let's see if this works.
What's that one? Let's not hold yet. Number two. Anyone for that one? What's that one? Intel, I bet we don't even know what that does, but we like know what it is. Right, next one. Netflix, here yeah, there you go. Here's the hardest one, I think. DreamWorks, here yeah, there you go. Like, don't you think that's unbelievable? That, like, not only have we got imagery around us, it's sort of entered our heads. We know this stuff without even having to think it. Uh, just a little clip of sound relates us back to the empire we live in, like, like that. Stuff we don't even know we want or need or what it does. Like, we've got a particular bit of sound that tells us what the empire is all about. I think that's phenomenal. I think we are awash with stuff that tells us messages about the society we live in, the story that that society is related to, and buy, 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 buy stuff. And why don't you get an Intel Pentium processor and all that sort of stuff? It's phenomenal. And I think as we read um, messages, a bit like Colossians, and lots of messages through the Bible, I think it's difficult for us to, to hear them, um, particularly in a sort of postmodernist society. We don't like it when the Bible says there is some truth. It's difficult to us to hear that because we want to leave our options open. We want, well, maybe a bit of that and a bit of this and actually truth's relative. So what you think's truth and what I think's truth might be completely different. It's difficult for us to hear Paul talking about there is something bigger out there that is truth. I think it's difficult for us to hear about worldviews. We see it as arrogant and sometimes it is a bit arrogant, um, but we see big worldviews presented to us as arrogant, it's difficult for us to get our heads around that sort of language. We don't like the language of absolutes because we want to live in a flexible world. And, and sometimes that's a really great thing, but sometimes that leads to a problem that we've left, left behind us a sense of worldview or anchor or ethical framework to work out how we respond to the empire we live in. There's um, a guy called Alistair McIntyre, who's a philosopher and a virtue ethicist and written a great book called After Virtue. And he says this, um, I'm going to paraphrase this terribly, he's a really clever man, but he says that um, we have got bits of the jigsaw of an ethical, ethical framework. We sort of left it all behind and we've got some little pieces and we are desperately trying to fit that ethical framework back together, but doing a really terrible job because we haven't got the bigger picture. It's like a jigsaw with most of the pieces missing and without the front cover. And we are trying to put our ethical framework back together to respond to the world we live in. But we haven't got the big picture. We've walked away from the big story, the big picture. And this is a really good quote. He says, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I answer the prior question, of what stories am I a part? I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I answer the prior question, of what stories am I part? And I think sometimes we've left the big story behind if we're not careful um, and actually need it to have an ethical view of how we approach that world that tells us about Intel and tells us about Disney and tells us about consumerism and tells us about the way this empire, this system we work in works. Um, 
I think we live in a particularly paralyzed place as a society, but particularly in the last sort of 10, 15, 20 years, really, because we don't have this ethical framework. And frankly, I think the empire that we live in loves the fact that we're paralyzed and don't quite know how to respond. I don't think we've even got the tools, frankly, to be able to push back at some of the stuff that goes on around us. Firstly, I don't think we've necessarily got the ethical framework to be able to do it. And secondly, I don't think we've got the tools to be able to do it. Um, you know, just in the last you know, couple of years, we've seen things happen in our country and around the world where people are able to lie, cheat, even kill people and just deny it. Even though we see it happen in front of our eyes, we can see just as an example, you know, Russian troops invade um, eastern Ukraine watch it happening on the telly and then get told it didn't happen. Those weren't Russian troops. Or we've seen politicians say one thing and then eight, 18 months later completely contradict it. And we get told, no, it didn't happen. I've always thought this. To the point where we've ended up with billboards in our cities with like the thing they said last week and the same thing they've said this week, one next to the other. We've got to the point where you can, and this is not everybody, but where you can lie and the confusion of is that true or not true and I don't know how to respond to it. You don't even need plausible deniability anymore. You just need to deny it. And we haven't really got the tools to push beyond it, I don't think. And I think that's to do with the ethical framework we're coming at it from and the tools that we're using. And um, I, I think... This is not everybody, so this is not a blanket statement, but I think there are some bits of our system which are deliberately attempting to add confusion into our world. The confusion helps. The confusion means we are no threat to the system we live in because we don't know which way's up and which way's down. The confusion of not really understanding our economic system means that how can we possibly dig into it? We don't know when I go and buy something in the shop, where it was made, by whom, how it got transported here, how it was like how the cocoa from West Africa came through about 14 different hands before it made it into the chocolate bar. I don't know whether it's really fair trade cocoa in there or whether it's not. You know, the confusion works for people. And I think, that, I think there are some places in our system where the confusion is being deliberately sown so that we can't push back, so that we can't work to live a different way in the empire. Um, there are these things called targums. I think that's how you pronounce it. But... Um, Rabbis, when they were interpreting uh, Jewish scriptures to people, would, they'd do it out loud. It was all spoken. And the reason they would do it out loud is because people often wouldn't be able to read the ancient Hebrew or, you know, read the text. So a Jewish rabbi would interpret it. And as a rabbi interpreted this text, they would embellish it. They would add in context. They would translate the words into the right culture. You know, that thing doesn't make sense, so I'll translate it into something that does make sense here. And they would write these targums, which are a sort of true to what the passage was about, but they would add in the contextualization and the translation so that people understood it. Um, that's quite a good way of reading scripture. And in here, there is a, a, a targum written down, um, which is a sort of poetic license version of that Colossians passage we just read, which just brings it into our context. Let me just read you a little bit of it. It's quite long. Here it says, so this is that Colossians passage we just read, but written, contextualized for us. In an image-saturated world, in a world of ubiquitous corporate logos permeating your consciousness, a world of dehydrated and captive imaginations, in which we are too numbered, satiated, and co-opted, 
to be able to dream of life otherwise. A world in which the empire of global economic affluence have achieved monopoly over our imaginations. In this world, Christ is the image of the invisible God. In this world, driven by images with a vengeance, Christ is the image par excellence, the image above all other images, the image that's not a facade, the image that's not trying to sell you anything, the image that refuses to co-opt you. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the image of God of flesh and blood here and now in time and history with joys and sorrows, image of who God is. The image of God of flesh and blood here and now in time and history with joys and sorrows, image of who we are called to be, image bearers of this God. In the face of the empire, in the face of presumptuous claims to sovereignty, in the face of imperial and idolatrous forces in our lives, Christ is before all things. He is sovereign in life, not the pimp dreams of the global markets, not the idolatrous forces of nationalism, not the insatiable desires of consumerist culture. In the face of a disconnected world where home is a domain in cyberspace, where neighbourhoods are a chat room, where public space is a shopping mall, where information technology promises a tuned-in, reconnected world, all things hold together in Christ. The creation is deeply personal, all cohering and interconnected in Jesus. That's just a little bit, but I think you take the point that you can probably look at what Paul was writing to that particular people in that particular context and actually take some lessons out of that if you extrapolate a bit. So, what are we supposed to do? Um, Is Paul saying to us, well, take the empire, the Roman Empire, it's not a good one, replace it with a different one. Um, I don't think he's saying that at all. I don't think he's saying, well, that ethic's wrong, let's just have a different type of empire, I'll tell you how you're supposed to run it. I think he's saying, do something counterintuitive which is what Leanne was saying earlier. I don't think he's saying take that empire and replace it with something else. And I think sometimes the church has been responsible for that. It's been, we don't particularly like the empire we live in. Let's replace it with Christendom, a different empire. And I don't think it's supposed to be that at all. I think Paul is saying something much deeper and much more counterintuitive than that. Here are two reasons why I don't think that holds any water, really. I don't think we're just saying replace something with the Christian version. One is that The system Paul's talking about is just different. Rome was all about power and might and control and subversion and take what you need and draw the limits of the Roman Empire. You could see the boundaries of it. You knew who was out and who was in. Um, Paul is not saying that at all. Into the story that he's talking about, it's not about power and might. Pain is written right into the heart of the story that Paul's talking about. He's talking about a Jesus that was actually sacrificed by the Roman Empire, who was killed by the Roman Empire, who was put in pain by the Roman Empire. He's talking about a completely different way of this hanging together, and it's not about power and might. It's actually about the weak Jesus that wins, but wins completely looking like he's losing, wins feeling like he's losing, wins dying on a cross. I mean, completely different paradigm for what Paul's talking about. Secondly, Paul used it as a language of the cosmos the whole time. He talks about heaven and earth and everything the whole way through his letter. Um, And that leads to a problem. If we set up an empire that's got a boundary and some of us are in it and some of us are not in it, we've immediately failed Paul's first test, which is this is for everybody, the entire cosmos. We're reconciling all things. Jesus and God reconciling the entire earth and the heavens and everybody and all things and the entire planet. So how can you set up an empire that's got a boundary and some people are in it and some people are not? Immediately, Paul is saying this is a different thing. 
This is not replace the Roman Empire with something new. And I think that's important for us too. I don't think we're saying replace what we've got with just the Christian version. Let me just read you again. This takes you on to Colossians chapter 3. Here's some of the advice that Paul gave the people of Colossae about what they might do differently, how they might live, how they might live in a counterintuitive way. This is chapter 3, verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which bonds them together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I mean, just that passage, and if you refer back to what I was talking about earlier, Roman citizens, the distinguishing attribute of a deity was power. Wisdom and morality, in the highest sense, hardly entered into a Roman citizen's notion of God at all. Paul talks about love, kindness, compassion, humility, gentleness, forgiveness, the peace of Christ. It's just a completely different way of viewing the world. So where do we start? Um, And I don't really want to give any glib answers to what we might do to push against, to live in a different way, to be counterintuitively, counterintuitive in the empire we live in. Because I think glib answers don't necessarily get us too far. The first thing I would say, though, is I think we need to genuinely understand the system we live in and acknowledge the fact that we actually live in a system and live in an empire that is good at the centre and terrible at the edges. Um, And I think we need to understand it better. I wonder, I'm sure there are some people in this room that do understand our economic system, but how does it actually work? Who does it benefit? Who misses out? Who does it work for and why? Are we genuinely saying growth, 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 growth? Like, what does that actually mean in the long term? What does that mean for the environment? What does that mean for the people who are working to deliver cheap things for us in our country? I think we need to, certainly as a church community, as a society, actually understand the system we live in. Secondly, in Paul's letters, he says to them constantly, like, live in this knowledge, dwell richly in it, imbibe it, understand who Jesus is and what he's calling us to. Like, it's got to be, like, come out of your bones. This is not just, like, something you do every Sunday morning for 20 minutes. So, like, if we take um, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, which is a similar list of stuff, you know, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, that's not a, um, just a piece of character development tool that every 10 minutes when I, you know, I do 10 minutes in a week meditating, I can use those as nice frame for that. That's like, how do I run every decision I ever make in the entirety of my life? How do we as a community run every decision we ever make in the entirety of our community through that? I think Paul's saying, like, sit with this stuff for a bit. Actually work out what it really, really, really means, not just use it as a nice little, you know, um, frame for a bit of meditation. And, And I think Paul really means that. He says that all the way through this letter, dwell in this stuff, imbibe it, really try and understand Otherwise, if you're not careful, you are going to just fight power with power. It's going to be not the Roman Empire, but my empire. And we'll fight head on power on power. And I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. First of all, I'd say we need to understand our system. Secondly, I think we really, really need to sit with what does the ethic of Jesus actually mean? 
how do we like sit with that and live with it for a bit so that we can work out how to respond? Thirdly, I think, and I know we do this as a community, but we have to involve ourselves in the world around us. The whole of this letter is not some airy-fairy spiritual thing. It's about praxis. It's about understanding by dwelling this stuff and then do something about it. Live in a different way. Live in a counterintuitive way. What does forgiveness, Paul bangs on about it through the letter, what does forgiveness mean in our prison system in this country? And we've got this wonderful opportunity together to work out what that actually means as a prison system in our country. We're going to run a prison, a youth prison together. What does forgiveness genuinely mean in that context? What does patience mean for us as we think about community development here in Waterloo? Governments, politicians can do sort of five-year cycles. Us as the church can do 200-year cycles because we are here in this community. We can think long-term. What does patience look like in the context of that? What does compassion mean in our finances? Is my pension invested in places that actually prop up the tobacco industry and arms trading? Do I spend as much money on myself as I give to others? What does compassion actually look like in my finances? What does kindness mean in the way we treat the environment? What are the, and you know, I'm the worst offender at this, but what are the small things we do day to day that have actually got a direct implication for somebody on the other side of the world but that I've managed to offset to somewhere else in Bangladesh or you know, on an island in the middle of the Indian Ocean. What does kindness mean for the way we treat the environment? What does love mean for the way we deal with those who have hurt us? Like, How do you actually respond in a way that's loving? I think Paul's saying, sit with this stuff, dwell on it, actually work out what that really means. This is not glib. And my final point is that Paul finishes his letter by saying... Thank you very much. Thank you for reading my letter. Remember me in chains. Like his final lines are, remember me in chains. And I think Paul is saying to that Christian community, to that revolutionary cell group, you need to live in this counterintuitive way, but it is going to require sacrifice. This is not glib. It is going to require you to do something different. It does actually require forgiveness and patience and compassion and kindness, and it will require sacrifice. Remember me in chains. So to us, as a church community, and to me, you know, I think we need to really understand our system. I think we need to sit with the ethic of Jesus far longer than we do. And I think we need to remember that as we play that out, it probably will require sacrifice. It probably will require me to spend more money on others than I would personally like to. It probably will require us going out of our way to get involved with that prison system and work out what forgiveness actually means. Um, I think Paul's calling the people of Colossae, and I think... You extrapolate it to us. He's calling us to that mission.